there are a couple of mistakes you should avoid when you adopt the collaborative road mapping approach. And the first one is to try and please everyone and taking on board everybody's and that's usually impossible. And if you try and do it, then it results in a compromised product or in a worst case of a Frankenstein product. Looks ugly, has a horrible user experience in a poor value proposition. Hello, and welcome to the Product People podcast. Here we learn from the most amazing people in the product space for 30 minutes at a time. My name is Romoita, and today we bring you the highlights of a conversation with Roman Pichler, hosted by Mirella, founder of Product People, and recorded live at one of our community events. Roman Pichler is a well-known author, speaker, and consultant on product management. He is the author of several books on product management, including Strategize and Agile Product Management with Scrum. At Product People, our mission is to help companies discover and deliver great products faster. We do that by doing hands-on product management work at companies of all sizes, and also by sharing knowledge generously with our community of more than 20,000 product enthusiasts. To find out more about us and access our community, check our website, getproductpeople.com, or head over to our YouTube, LinkedIn, or Meetup pages. You can find all the links in the episode description. I leave you now with Roman and Mirella. I hope you enjoy this episode. Are there any best practices when managing a diverse and very extensive portfolio of smaller software products? So a, a portfolio, a product portfolio is a group of products. You know, sometimes these are related products. Take for instance, a productivity, a productivity portfolio like Microsoft Office. So, you know. I think, you know, the office, members of the office suite are probably quite, quite closely related. I mean, they're bundled. You can only subscribe to them as far as I know as a package. Um, now I think what, what is, is helpful to understand the relationship between members of a portfolio and, and also understand at which life cycle stage, the members of a portfolio, the individual products are to try and achieve a, or create a balanced product portfolio. I mean, ultimately, certainly across a larger number of products within any given portfolio when any company, you want to make sure that you have the right mix of young and, and old products, particularly or older products, particularly if these are revenue generating products, so that you have enough cash cows to pay the bills, uh, fund future innovation initiatives. And at the same token, you've got enough young products that hopefully eventually will then grow and, and, and develop and develop into cash cows. And so, you know pay the bills in the future. So that, that's something to watch out for. The other thing to consider is dependencies and, you know, think about where dependencies may be useful and where do they hold you back and hold the development of the individual products back? How, how much in terms of norms and shared standards do you have to establish across that portfolio? So in, in terms of say user interaction and user experience in, in, in general, including user interface design, are there any, any standards? Or what about things like, say, the ability to persist data seamlessly to various data storage services, including the cloud? And and would it be useful to introduce some form of a platform? So you know that might that platform might provide then end user facing shared assets around the user experience and standardize the user experience, and it might provide a back end infrastructure services assets to so that you know the the development teams that build the apps that build the members of the product portfolio don't have to worry about those kind of you know 
infrastructure related, don't have to create the infrastructure related code essentially. And then I, I find that it can be useful, particularly if it's a larger product portfolio to have somebody in charge of that portfolio. Sometimes the head of product can act as a, as a product portfolio manager and help set priorities and help anticipate and manage dependencies between members of that portfolio. And sometimes it makes sense to have a dedicated person who then is in charge of that portfolio. And yeah, that's, that's the work that I, that I mentioned. Thank you for that. And, and this is also something that it's usually very hard to do. As we know, this is more mature companies. How do you make innovation not a crapshoot or, or build alternate revenue streams? As we, we've seen in some companies that were successful for a while and then they didn't do much and, and just relied on the cash cow because it's always easier to prioritize them. Yeah, and I think to a certain extent, it's perfectly okay to pay attention to cash cows or core innovations. I mean, various ways how you can refer to those products that as i said pay today's build but at the same time as you just said if we're not willing to take informed risks and invest in new products then it's kind of difficult to see where revenue is going to come from in the future and you know that that has to take place in terms of developing either brand new products or new products and services if we want to grow organically or otherwise we have to look into acquiring businesses and then you know use their products and services and integrate them into our portfolios in, in both cases we we have to be willing to take a risk and you know we have to actively sort of look towards the future and again as i said you know getting that balance right getting that mix of kind of young products and and more established older products right i mean that will be the job of a product portfolio manager. Mm-hmm. And now I'll take a few on the roadmaps. What is the best prioritization framework you would suggest to use for a roadmap? Ah, the best prioritization framework. So I think in order to be able to answer that question, it's another great question. Thank you for asking those questions. Is I think the first step is to reflect on what kind of product roadmap I'll be dealing with, especially what product roadmap format. And so Personally, I'm a, a big fan of a goal-oriented or outcome-based roadmaps. Some people like to call them problem-based roadmaps or themed roadmaps or benefits-based roadmaps. I mean, to me, largely those terms are synonymous. You can use them largely interchangeably. And so if we have a, a goal-oriented or outcome-based roadmap where we talk about the benefits that we want to achieve with our product over, say, the next 12 months, something like we want to acquire more users, or we want to increase conversion, or we want to increase engagement, or we want to future-proof the product by removing technical debt, or we want to start monetizing the product and generating revenue, or we want to reduce cost, or whatever it might be, then my first approach will be to look for um, semantic dependencies between those goals. And that works particularly well for young products and when you're making a bigger change to an existing product in order to then create a meaningful narrative and tell a meaningful story through your, 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 your product roadmap. So... An example I like to use is offering a, a healthy eating product, a product that helps people eat more healthily. If I wanted now to create a brand new product, then the very first version, the MVP, might help people become aware of their, uh, their eating habits, maybe specific eating habits around breakfast. I'm, I'm told that breakfast seems to be the most important meal of the day. So maybe that's something you want to bring awareness to first. And then, you know, we could consider maybe trying to encourage people to deepen their awareness and, and bring awareness to, to other meals and then maybe help them start changing their habits. So, you know, in, in that instance, 
the, the, the product roadmap will be driven or the, the prioritization, the ordering of the elements, the information on the product roadmap will be driven by, you know, how do we, how can we develop that product in a meaningful way and how can we offer more value to the users in, again, a, a meaningful, convincing way. So that's what I meant by a compelling narrative. But if you have a product that's currently experiencing a phase of stability, or is maybe we talked about cash cows earlier, it's maybe mature, and you now focus on incremental changes, updates, and bug fixes, smaller enhancements, then it can be a good idea to look at your KPIs, your key performance indicators, and use the indicator that currently shows the biggest issue in order then to decide, first of all, discover the right goal, determine, you know, what kind of outcomes are necessary or you should work towards, and then also decide on what needs to happen first. So, you know, if you see, for instance, that code quality is going down and maybe, you know, the uptime has started to suffer as well, then that's maybe something you want to address first be before you want to try and increase conversion further or, you know, increase engagement further. Yes, and, and this is also something that's sometimes less visible to prioritize, investing in infrastructure, velocity, and efficiency, so you can then enable your next phase of growth as a Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, sometimes organizations and, and individual product people struggle to, to yeah, make those future-proving goals enough of a priority. So I'm not suggesting you should necessarily spend two years refactoring your product, but sometimes it can make sense to spend maybe six weeks or two months cleaning up your, your code base, removing those parts that, that are particularly complex, contain a lot of spaghetti code in order then to be able to add new functionality or enhance existing features. So something that might be worth con considering. Thank you so much. And I'll take a follow-up. What is your advice on how to get buy-in from stakeholders on a roadmap that is focused on goals and impact instead of features? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's a great question. You know, traditionally, product roadmaps are feature-based plans. I mean, in the simplest form, it's essentially a list of features mapped onto a timeline. And if you do an internet search, or you maybe go to, to Google or Google Images and you, you key in product roadmap, most of the images that will come are feature-based roadmaps. So it's still something that people are used to. It's still sort of the dominant roadmap format. But feature-based feature, feature -based roadmaps tend to be, you know, for me, it's something I... I, I, I I used to say they're okay in certain scenarios. There's, they're okay at certain life cycle stages of your product, but I, I've now kind of moved on and I tend to discourage people generally to use feature-based roadmap and generally encourage people, no matter how old or young or stable or tangible and innovative their product is, to use goal-oriented outcome-based roadmaps. So I think outcome-based roadmaps really are more stable. It's easier to achieve agreement around shared goals or generally goals and outcomes rather than detailed features. You minimize the risk that there's an overlap between say a story map or product backlog and the roadmap and, and a number of other benefits that goal-oriented outcome-based roadmaps have. Now, how do you get stakeholders to, to buy into that roadmapping approach if people are used to features? Well, I think to a certain extent, like with any change, it's just a, a process of, you know, people getting used to it. it sometimes takes time for people to get their heads rounded and people have to experience working with a goal-oriented outcome-based roadmaps to, to really understand how, how this roadmap works and, and be able to 
kind of build trust in that road mapping approach. Um, but then, you know, if, if it kind of persists and if people continue to be hesitant, even though you've introduced the, the new road mapping format, the new road mapping approach, and you've kind of shown people how to create goals and how to work with goals, and they still say, yeah, but I want my features, I want my features. What about my features? Then it's worthwhile reflecting on that and, and asking yourself, why is that? You know, people sort of worried that their interests aren't being taken into account and aren't reflected on the product roadmap, while people kind of acting in, in somewhat selfish ways and they care more, more about their personal goals than the value that the product creates for the users and the business as a whole. And so if it's more around that people are concerned that their, that their needs aren't being accounted for, then one, one way to do this, and you know, it's something I, I would encourage you to, to try out is to adopt a collaborative approach and run collaborative product road mapping workshops. You know, they might be on, on site, they might be online. But really involving the key stakeholders and development team representatives in a joint session where you review a product roadmap and then you discuss any necessary changes and you make those changes together. And so as the person in charge of the product, you would essentially lead through that workshop. You might ask an agile coach or scrum master or another skilled facilitator to moderate, to facilitate the session. You'd guide people through it, but you'd use a decision-making rule, say like consents to ensure that there's sufficient agreement and consent means that there aren't any meaningful objections. So you really give people the opportunity to contribute and that can not only lead to better product decisions and a, and a, and a better understanding, a shared understanding of what those goals and what those roadmap elements mean, but it all can also secure stronger buy-in. It tends to secure stronger buy-in if you invite people to, to contribute to a decision. But there the are a couple of mistakes you should avoid when you adopt a collaborative road mapping approach. And the first one is to try and please everyone and take in on board everybody's and that's usually impossible. And if you try and do it, then it results in a compromised product or in a worst case of a Frankenstein product looks ugly, has a horrible user experience in a poor value proposition. And the other mistake I see product people make is to allow the most senior stakeholder to dominate and then the hippo wins the highest paid personal opinion. And again, that's not the point. That's not collaborative decision-making. That's just, you know, the most senior person decides. Collaborative decision-making means that you leverage the expertise and the knowledge of the people present but you make the right decision that moves your product forward in an effective way. I think the, when this situation happens, it's not necessarily a problem with the roadmap or the technique. It's, it's more of managing up and figuring out how to align diverse groups composed of very strong personalities, which all PMs end up running into as part of their job. Yeah, that's right. It's called product management, but it's yeah. all about people, right? It's all about understanding users and customers and being able to empathize with the, the audience, the target group, the market, but equally, it's equally important to understand the, the stakeholders and empathize with the stakeholders and understand where they're coming from, what their ideas and concerns are and what their underlying needs and motives and goals are. And, and then of course, you also have the development teams to connect with. So yeah, there's a lot of people stuff in product management and hence it's, it's really beneficial to develop our, our soft skills, our interpersonal skills, or our leadership skills. I, I do really think that, you know, practicing product people also have to show leadership and, and have to actively work to, to align and guide the stakeholders and development teams. As the person in charge of the product, you don't want to be, be driven by your stakeholders. You want to lead, you know, you want to lead the way 
And in order to do that, I think it's important to, to build trust and establish, you know, effective, good connections. I mean, the, the key challenge we have as product people is that we lack what's referred to as transactional power, right? We're not the boss. We can't tell the stakeholders what to do. We can't make the stakeholders agree to a product roadmap, for instance, or follow specific goals on that roadmap. So we, we rely on the, the goodwill and the cooperation of, of the stakeholders. But I think what we can do is we can influence people, but people are usually only willing to be, to be guided by us and influenced if they trust us, if they know that we, we care about them and we wouldn't act against their, their interests, at least not knowingly. Right. And so I think, you know, the whole thing around building trust and relationship management and, um, you know, empathizing with the stakeholders is, is hugely important. And if you, you know, you can have the, the most amazing product strategy, you can have the most beautiful product roadmap. If your stakeholders don't understand those plans, if your st stakeholders don't sufficiently buy into those plans, they're pretty much worthless. And that buy-in you secure by, as I said, the relationship building, the trust building. And by actively involving people in creating and reviewing and updating those plans, it's a great way also to align people. It's a great way to create shared goals, right? And the nice thing about, for me, at least, and, and in the model that I've developed, the model that I use, the model that I teach is that when you have an overarching product strategy and you have user goals, customer goals in form of need statements in that strategy, and you have business goals in your strategy. You can take those goals and then you can break them into more specific, measurable, shorter term goals and put them on your roadmap. And that way your roadmap is systematically connected to your strategy. That's one of the benefits of having goal-oriented roadmaps. The other benefit is that, and I mentioned that earlier brief, roadmaps tend to be more stable when you work, when you focus on goals and you omit features or, you know, if you if you use my Go product roadmap template, then you still have features on there, but they're very big. They're huge. They're coarse grained and they're only three to five features per goal. And every feature has to, must support one of the goals. So you can't just squeeze a feature on the roadmap. There always has to be a goal that this feature serves. So goals come first, Brilliant. feature second, and then it's easier to reach agreement on goals and, and shared outcomes rather than a list of potentially detailed features. And finally, you know, if you have detailed features, then often there's an overlap between the product backlog and the roadmap. And, and, you know, in the worst case, those plans start to compete and, you know, in the best case, you have an increased maintenance overhead for the roadmap, the detailed product decisions, they should be in the product backlog. Thank you for that. So do you think that there are problems with roadmaps that we didn't discuss in the previous questions? And what do you think could be alternatives to that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's another nice question. So, yeah, I mean, product roadmaps. So I, I think product roadmaps can be incredibly useful product management tools. They can be really super useful for us as product people, but equally, if they're not applied properly, you know, they can also be in a way harmful, you know, so if you, you know, if people misunderstand a product roadmap as a hard and fast plan that is created and then is executed and mistake the information on a product roadmap. As, 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 as hard commitments and then, you know, insists that goals are met and dates and timeframes are met no matter what you essentially turn a development method or a development effort into a death march, you know, and, and the, the impact on people is, is horrible, right? I mean, you know, people not only work extra hours, 
but you know, people, you know, tend to get demotivated. People make mistakes. People are tired. You know, maybe people fall ill. Some people start to leave. So I think it's really important to understand that first of all, in order to create a, a realistic, actionable product roadmap, you have to have a strategy, a validated product strategy in place. I mentioned it earlier. That really is an important prerequisite. And secondly, you must regularly inspect and adapt. You must regularly review and update your product roadmap. And as a rule of thumb, do that once a quarter. So sometimes once a quarter is not often enough, and maybe you should shoot for bi-monthly or even monthly reviews and updates. Sometimes it's the, the cadence is too high and you can get away with looking at it every four to six months. If there's a lot of stability in your product is maybe pretty solid, very mature. But as a rule of thumb, you know, maybe start with three months of use and you know, ideally bring the stakeholders and development team members together, at least in form of an online workshop, discuss any changes that have happened. See if your product roadmap is still up to date, if it's still a, a helpful and valid plan. And if that's not the case, then well, make the necessary bonifications, the necessary changes. So product roadmap is, is always, should always be forward looking and it has to be, be based on what we know right now. And as our knowledge changes, the plan will have to change as well. Thank you so much. And I'll move to the strategy questions. How do you maintain support and stakeholder buy-in for your product strategy for an underperforming product or a product which is losing market share? Yeah. Wow. Interesting question. So mm -hmm. your product is underperforming and possibly losing market share, you have a problem. <laughs> that's it. So if your stakeholders are getting worried, well, I think that's, that's okay. I mean, that's to be expected. I'd be getting worried if you know, my product is, is underperforming and losing market share. It's not a good place. Uh, it's not, it's not great. And it's not good a place to be in. So, you know, the first thing to, to, to recognize is it's, it's good to have that information. So you must have chosen meaningful key performance indicators, and you must have collected data and reviewed that data. So you know that uh, product performance isn't great and you're losing market share. So that's a good thing. The next thing then is to understand why, why is it happening and how long has it happening, been happening? Is it a trend? And if it's been a trend, okay. What can we do to, to change and what you can do to change will to a certain extent depend on where your product is in its life cycle. So if your product, if you've launched your product, if you've launched an MVP and your product is underperforming, it might be an indication that your product strategy is wrong, that it's flawed. And so you may have to radically change the product strategy. You may have to pivot. Think of YouTube changing from an online, a dating website to a video sharing service, or think about is it Flickr that started as a computer game and now is a photo sharing website? So those are well-known post-launch pivots or, or Google Glass started as a consumer product that attracted a lot of interest and controversy. And now it's a, you know, B2B product that is, is, is for people who need their hands at work, like doctors, GPs, surgeons, and production line workers, for instance. So again, a pretty radical change, a post-launch pivot. So that might be required. If your product, however, has been around for a while and, you know, you've got to, you've, you've experienced maybe months or, you know, maybe years of growth, then that's an indication that growth is starting to stagnate and your product is approaching maturity. And in that case, you have to ask yourself, well, should you allow your product to age gracefully and leverage it as a cash cow, assuming it's a revenue generating product, or should you extend its life cycle and rejuvenate it? And if you intend to extend its life cycle and move it back essentially into the growth stage, how are you going to do it? 
you're going to add new features? Are you going to radically improve the user experience? Are you significantly enhance existing features? Are you going to take it to a new market market segment? Is it going to be a combination of those, those measures? But yes, yeah, I mean, product performance is down, particularly you know, over, over weeks or months and losing market share is a trend is never, never great. And so you really need to need to look into what are your options. If you have a young product and you've already pivoted once or twice, but still the product is not performing well, well, then you may have to retire it early. You may have to kill it early and thereby you know, saving yourself time, money, and, and energy that otherwise would be probably misinvested. You know, so, you know, despite our best intentions, despite our best efforts, sometimes we can't make a product successful. We can't achieve product market fit. And in that case, it's important to, to recognize that and, and be honest to ourselves and have the courage then to uh, kill our product at an early stage. Think of Google Wave, for instance, as, as one of many, many product examples that you know, it was launched with big ambitions and high hopes, but yeah, never managed to achieve product market fit and make it into the growth stage. Thank you for that. And now we'll take one last question. Uh, is there a particular approach to developing a product strategy that you follow? In a way there is, yes. So, I mean, first of all, I, I find it's, it's helpful to, to understand what a product strategy is and what information you want to capture in your product strategy. And you know, there's no universally agreed definition, you know, of, of a product strategy, but I like to suggest that you capture the problem you want to solve or the benefit you want to create in your strategy, that you capture the target group, the market market segments, the audience you want to address, and you should benefit from having a problem removed or addressed or, you know, having a benefit created. Uh, so those might be users, it might be users and customers. And then that you talk about what sets your product apart from maybe competing offerings and encourages people to choose it over those offerings. That's particularly important for end user facing products and, uh, and sort of list the, the three key features, three to five key features, standout features of your product. And finally, think about the business goals. What is the, the value that the product should create for the business What are the desired business benefits? And again, just like with the roadmaps, if you, if you want to try out some of my tools, some of my templates, a number of years ago, I created the product vision board, which as its name suggests, allows you to capture the vision and underneath the vision, then the, the product strategy and those four elements that I've mentioned. There are other templates and tools out there. It's just important, I think, to reflect on what is a product strategy? What do I mean by a product strategy? What do we as an organization mean by a product strategy? What is the information we have to put in there? That's the first thing. And then the second thing is I have a strong preference to strategize in a collaborative fashion, involve the key stakeholders and development team representatives at an early stage in creating a product strategy and then keeping them involved in validating that strategy. I like to start with an initial good enough draft strategy, you could say, that is just testable, just about testable. We need to validate that. We need to do something. We may have to carry out some direct observation or carry out some problem interviews with selected users. Maybe we have to do some competitive research and some competitive analysis in order to figure out if say we've chosen the right market market segment, or if the, the, the problem is strong enough, just like what I said about the product roadmap, I like to apply the same rule of thumb to the product strategy. And in fact, I like to combine a strategy review and a roadmap review strategy describes the overarching approach to achieve product success. And then the roadmap, the way I look at it says, this is, these are the specific steps that we're taking to implement the strategy. Yeah. So I like to review the two and update the two plans together. 
So, you know, those are the, some of the techniques that you may want to, may want to consider, which I've also described in my book, Strategize. Cool. And thank you so much, Roman. Is there something additionally you'd like to comment on, on based on the questions you had so far or the thoughts that come to your mind after all the questions? Now, one of the great advancements I think we've seen in product management over the past 15 odd years is the amount of user data that we can collect these days. And we have available, readily available, essentially at our fingertips. I think that is truly, truly brilliant. But I think what it's done for some of us, it's that it's kind of removed us from the users and customers. And I think as important and helpful as analytics tools and quantitative data are, it's equally important to be able to connect on a regular basis with selected users and customers through talking to people, interviewing them, observing them. Now, why am I mentioning this in the context of strategy and roadmap? Because my experience suggests that when people find it challenging to come up with an effective product strategy and also, you know, make meaningful product roadmap decisions, often that's rooted in a lack of understanding of the market. And the lack of understanding of the users and customers and their needs, the understanding isn't deep enough. And so I really do think it's, it's, it's very worthwhile to ensure that, that you reach out regularly to people and particularly before you make, or as in the process of making bigger strategic changes. And the second thing I'd like to say is when you take an informed risk in order to innovate, in order to create something new, in order to progress a product or create more value. You know, there's a risk that we don't get things right, that we make a mistake or that we fail. So that is part of the game. And so I think it's just important to be aware of that and kind of really em em embrace an entrepreneurial mindset or an intrapreneurial mindset, if you want. So, and say like, yeah, I mean, you know, my job is to create more value with my product or to maximize the value that that product creates, you know, in order to do so, there's still a risk that things might not work out. Thank you so much, Roman. Thank you for listening to this Product People podcast episode. To check the full conversation with video and to see the talks from other guests, head over to our YouTube page. The next podcast episode will feature Mirella, the founder and CPO at Product People, and will be the last one from our first season. Make sure to follow our show on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss it. See you next time.